welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 27th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released in September of 2022 and can now be ordered, pre-ordered on Amazon. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Are you guys all getting uh, hydrated and properly rested and things like that? Because our our April was crazy, and uh, the new musical is 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 it a musical? POTUS? Or, I, I no. Can't remember. Yes. I no. It, it is. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> what is it? I, it's a I, musical. I think so. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Well, uh, I, I, what, I could be wrong. Yeah. What we're saying here too. is that yeah, POTUS <laughs> is. Let me look it up here. Um. POTUS has moved up their uh, opening night uh, from uh, the first week in May or so into the last week of April so that they can be Tony eligible. So uh, I thought that was so odd when it was initially announced and it was just missing the cutoff. Yeah, Matt Tamanini had a... uh, uh, had a theory on that was that I do too. Let's see if we we agree. Go ahead. Matt's theory was that uh, everything has been so wishy washy about uh, uh, about dates and stuff. Information coming out of the Tony Awards that they just figured that the Tonys would allow them to be part of the season. Um, oh, because what they did was they moved up their opening night. It's not really an opening night. It's an opening afternoon. They moved into an a uh, opening on the 27th in a matinee because the evening is Mr. Saturday night's opening night. Uh, so, uh, well, Peter, what's your theory about this? Well, I wouldn't be a bit surprised uh, at the risk of being terribly cynical that they said, let's say we're going to open in May and then we'll say, Oh, you know, it's going so well. You know, we just have to uh, open during the season. I mean, uh, we're ahead of schedule. Everything's going so splendidly. Um, let's do it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was um, a plan right from the very beginning that they never intended to uh, open, quote unquote, next season. So uh, and, you know, fine, fine. You know, I'm, that's uh, whatever it is, is fine with me. And I'm looking forward to seeing it opening on an afternoon. I wonder if that's the first opening on an afternoon since Home Sweet Homer in um, 1976. I don't know. Have many shows open since then on an afternoon? I, but, I um, can't think of anybody that's open in well, an afternoon. Um, Home Sweet Homer opened on a Sunday afternoon and closed on a Sunday afternoon. Um, they called it a life after one performance, after touring the country for more than a year. Um, so uh, so maybe, I don't know. But I I wouldn't be a bit surprised if this was in the the works from all time because it seems so, so, so bizarre to open... Um, in in quote unquote next season. The other thing too, though, um, you know, with Grove from North Country coming back, and POTUS at the Schubert, um, where does that leave To Kill a Mockingbird? Now, yeah, of course, lots of people talked about that. Uh, Grove from North Country say they're closing on the 11th of June, and 
To Kill a Mockingbird always wanted to start on the 1st of June, so maybe they will go to the Belasco. But where's that set going in the meantime? Um, I have a lot of questions about that. So um, I hope we haven't lost To Kill a Mockingbird because I thought it was terrific. And um, I think it um, certainly is a show that uh, people need to see for many reasons. I don't think that we're going to lose it because of the contract with Greg Kinnear. I think that they're, I think they are, well, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to talk out of school, but I, yeah. I've heard something about his okay. contract. All right. But, um, and I guess I was wrong. I was wrong. It, it is a play. It's a play. It is. Yeah. It is okay. yeah. I, I was thrown off by Susan Stroman. Susan Stroman. <laughs> exactly. Sure. That's exactly, exactly, Michael. My thought was like, oh, Susan Stroman's directing must be a musical. But uh, when uh, you go by the Schubert, by the way, um, I'm talking about the marquee that faces um, 44th Street. Um, the words Susan and Stroman are awfully large. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's earned it. As she's they should it. be. Yeah, as they should it. be. They love her, as does everyone. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, lovely lady, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was uh, in the neighborhood last night, and uh, I got the opportunity to eat at a a new restaurant that just opened right next to uh, Paradise Square across from Six called Brooklyn Chop House, mm. which is a steakhouse and lots of other things there. It was really, really good. So if you get a chance and looking for something new to experience in the Times Square area, check out Brooklyn Chop House in Times Square. They have a number of... Uh, a number of locations, I, I think, including Brooklyn, but they also have a Manhattan one downtown. Make sure you get the Times Square one if you're making a reservation, because we made the reservation at the wrong one, and they oh. fit us. They fit us in Times Square, so that was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I was supposed to go to a reading of a new musical called Brooklyn Bridge, um, and at, and I was told it was at Ripley Greer, so I put in my mm. iPhone Ripley Greer, and they sent me uh, to Five Twenty Eighth Avenue, yeah. and I got there just at. 259 oh. was going to start at three. And of course, they told me that there's it was more actually, than one Ripley Greer. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I now found out there were four. Yeah. So my heart was broken because the guy, um, I, I had promised the guy I'd go see it. And I really felt terrible at Ray Roderick, is his name. And, oh, Ray. Yeah. You know him? Oh, I know uh, Ray really well. Yeah. Oh, well, he's written a terrific musical. I'll tell you he's that. He's written a number of terrific musicals. Yeah. Well, the thing <laughs> is, um, I, when I apologized, he said, well, you know, we're doing it again, you know. Um, and um, so I went on Thursday and it really turned out to be sensational. Um, music is really, really thrilling. Um, very thrilling. And I'm so glad that um, it's being developed because it really deserves a chance. Um, Joseph Baker is the composer and he has done a majestic job. Now the Brooklyn bridge itself is majestic, but you need majestic music to match it. And Joseph (laughs) Baker has really provided that. So it's really, really quite good. So um, I'm, I'm tremendously impressed and I really, really think it has a future. And I really hope, you know, I mean, these things always work out differently from the way we think they're going to, but um, a young woman named Savannah Frazier, um, plays the lead. And um, I hope she gets to do it because she really deserves it. I mean, I, I was sitting in the first row and I really admire when actors can cry. It makes, I'm so impressed that they can do it at, uh, when they really at the drop of a tear and they, and she did it. Um, it's a terrific story because um, we really owe a lot to a woman for having the Brooklyn bridge built because her husband. Yes. Yes. Got, yeah. Um, uh, suffered from the bends. Yeah. Roebling indeed suffered from the bends and she had to take over. And of course, imagine a woman taking over in the building of a bridge who's listening to her. So she really had to make her presence known. So it's a terrific story. And um, I wish them well. 
Wow, I didn't know that, and I thought I knew a lot about the Brooklyn Bridge. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is. That is great. Yeah, that's I, uh, all in that uh, that New York documentary by Oh, the Ken Burns. Yes, yeah, the Ken Burns. Oh, I love yeah. Ken Burns documentaries. Or is there? Oh, wait a minute. Or is there a separate documentary on the Brooklyn Bridge? I think there is. Yeah, I could uh, by, imagine by yeah. him. Also, I think I have to look that up. So uh, Ray Roderick was um, in Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum with Nathan Lane. And while he was doing Forum, he was directing a production of uh, Neil Berg's The Prince and the Pauper that I was producing for Neil. Uh, and and I uh, got to know Ray through there. And then Ray created a show with Jim Hyman called The Christmas Survival Guide. And uh, my record label, we recorded it for Ray. Uh, and so I've done a number of things with Ray, and he, he's just incredibly talented on stage, off stage, from from every angle. He's he's just a wonderful guy, and uh, his wife Karen Quackenbush is also a great performer. So anyway, let's yep. move forward into <laughs> <Okay>. our review <laughs> section. Uh, first up, Peter got over to New World Stages to see a play called Little Girl Blue. Tell us about this, Peter. Well, in fact, it is a musical because it's about Nina Simone, um, <clears throat> who grew up wanting to be a concert pianist. <clears throat> However, uh, she grew up in an era where uh, blacks weren't getting opportunities and she was discouraged every step of the way. Every music school she applied to, uh, they said, no, nah, she's not quite good enough. And uh, Nina Simone believed that she was quite good enough, but all right. Doors are slamming in her face. Let's see what doors can be open to her. And um, the doors that were open to her was as a singer. So she made it as a singer. So she was certainly talented in two areas. Now. Um, <laughs> Leona Michelle, uh, her first name is spelled L-A-I-O-N-A. I guess it's Leona, uh, but it's the name we're all going to know. This is a phenomenal performance. She wrote the show too, and she knows what she's talking about, but the way I will put it because she, well, let, let's do it this way. Um, the first concert is in 1968, only a few days after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And the next, that's first act. The second act um, is eight years later in 1976, and she's in Europe where she's more welcomed. And during the first part, she certainly um, talks about uh, civil rights and, and such matters. In the second act, she really talks about civil rights and such matters. Here's the way I'd like to put it. She takes the bull by the horns. And she takes the bullshit by the horns, too. That's what goes on in this show. But and then she can sing these songs. This is a magnificent performance. Magnificent. No other word will do. Um, I was mesmerized from top to bottom. So um, I certainly hope that this gets a big audience at New World Stages. Um, I'm, I want people clamoring to get in because this performance must be seen. So it seems uh, from their website that it started out at George Street. Uh, yeah, I did hear that. I, I, I didn't see it there, but yes, that's right. Again, George Street Playhouse just uh, finding the gems. Finding oh, yeah. It. That's yeah, David really... Saint's really smart. Yeah, really smart. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, on their website, they have a phonetic pronunciation. We love that you have a phonetic pronunciation on the website. It is Leona, Michelle. Uh -huh. Okay. Leona. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, all right. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. That is really, really wonderful. Michael, you, uh, speaking of uh, George Street Playhouse in New Jersey, you also got out to New Jersey to the Axelrod Performing Arts Center where you saw the bridges of, of Madison County. So tell us about this. 
It was a very, very worthwhile trip. It was an incredibly wonderful production directed by Hunter Foster at the Axelrod Performing Arts Center in Deal, um, New Jersey, where I had never been before. It's actually part of a Jewish community center. Uh, and if I understand correctly, it's uh, it started out, or at least something there started out as a community theater, and now they're moving up and they're I guess you would say semi-professional now. I'm told they had three equity contracts uh, for this show uh, among the cast anyway. And those were filled by uh, Kate Baldwin as Francesca, uh, Aaron Lazar, our recent podcast guest as Robert, and Bart Chateau, uh, who played uh, Francesca's husband, which was the role that Hunter played uh, in the original mm. Broadway production. Yeah. And I uh, i don't know about you guys. I, I loved the show when it was on Broadway. I felt it didn't completely work. And it was a little hard to put my finger on exactly what the issue was. Um, I think it might have had something to do with um, the direction by Bartlett Shear or Cher. Um, but uh, this seemed like a, a tremendous improvement over that production uh hunter uh, apparently made some very judicious cuts um just really minor things that you would have to know the show really well in order to notice um but there is one one that i noticed that i'll I'll get to in a minute uh as we know that the story is about this uh woman named francesca living in uh She's an Italian woman, but she had married a an American serviceman during the war, and now she's living in Iowa, uh, in the middle of nowhere. And you know, she she's, seems fulfilled with her husband and her her family, her son and her daughter. But then this fellow um, shows up from National Geographic. He's taking photos for National Geographic of the bridges. Uh, the local bridges and they, you know, they meet just by happenstance and then they wind up falling completely in love with each other. And uh, one of those kind of soulmate, almost love at first sight things. And it's about whether or not she's going to leave her family, uh, you know, and go off with this guy or not. Uh, so there was a, I never read the book. There was a, a movie with Meryl Streep, and uh, Clint Eastwood that uh, was got some very, very mixed reviews, but was tremendously popular anyway. Um, and I, I think it was ripe for musicalization. So Jason Robert Brown really took, um, you know, took it and ran with it uh, and created a beautiful, really beautiful score. Um, and I think uh, initially I thought there was maybe some problems in uh, the way that the chorus was worked into the show, uh, representing the, uh, you know, the people of the community and, and some other small roles. But somehow that seemed that, like it was better done here. And um, the uh, I, I, um, well, I, I'll, I'll tell what the what the major change was that I saw. Uh, I guess it's a spoiler. So if you <laughs> if you planning to maybe get to see the show uh but uh, uh you won't be able to see this one because close this week <laughs> right yeah <laughs> uh, um in the in the original well in the movie um there's an incredible scene where uh uh 
Francesca's husband and her kids have returned from the fair, the state fair. And um, the question is, is Francesca going to meet Robert in town uh, and run away with him or not? And in the movie, she is in a car with her husband. Mm. uh, And I, as I recall it, they pull up in back of the car in which this Robert fellow is sitting and waiting for her. And there's an incredible scene with Meryl Streep with her hand on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the, uh, on the door, you know, on the, the, the handle of the door, uh, car door, like whether or not she's going to open it or not and change her entire life. Uh, and so she doesn't, and she starts crying and he asks her what's wrong and she doesn't tell him. Well, in the, in the play, uh, in the show, uh, obviously they, they didn't feel they could do the car thing. So instead, um, what happened on Broadway was that Francesca and her family went to town and ran into Robert as he was waiting for her. And what you saw on Broadway was that she ran to him and ran into his arms. And you thought, what? (laughs) Um, But then they rewound the scene. And and it turned out that that was just her fantasy. And and instead, in reality, her daughter says, who is that man? And she says, oh, he was just a man who was taking pictures uh, of the bridges uh, of, of Madison County. And that's it. And they go out of each other's lives and they and they never see each other again. Um, so what Hunter did was he cut out the um, the fantasy thing. Uh, and I, I was surprised at first and I wasn't sure if it was a great idea, but I, I think that it really worked. It just helped to little, tighten it a little bit. Uh, and it also made it a less confusing. So little things like that, that he did a really great job with, but this was mostly about every, everything about the production was phenomenal. The, the, the sound amplification, the lighting, the production, the, the, the orchestra, uh, but the two leads were so phenomenal that I, I can't even express it to you. Mm-hmm. I had always been a fan of Kate Baldwin, but I never knew that she had that kind of a soprano register because I guess I've just really never seen her in anything that required that kind of soaring operatic kind of soprano, which, uh, you know, was was what we heard from Kelly O'Hara on Broadway. Um, mm, Kelly. Yeah, <laughs> Kelly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I liked her before. Now I really, really love her as a performer and her Italian accent. Uh, you know, I mean, I've been around people with Italian accents in my life and I, it sounded it sounded really, really authentic to me. I would to be honest, I wouldn't say she looked any more Italian than Kelly. Um, they both look as Irish as the day is long. <laughs> um, and uh, but, you know, so a little little suspension of disbelief there. Um, uh, and it was really worth it because in every other possible way, she was ideal as Francesca. And uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron's voice is equally great. And he uh, as soon as I heard he was cast, I thought, oh, what a perfect what perfect casting for that role of Robert um, Kincaid, I think his name is. Uh, 
in terms of voice, looks, age, uh, personality, everything, and and he and he fulfilled it. And on top of all of that, the acting was the best acting I've ever seen in a musical. Wow. And and uh, to begin with, the theater is quite small. I I'm, I'm bad at this, but I think it was somewhere between two hundred and three hundred seats total. And and we were in the front row, mm. and and there was no pit uh, because the musicians were actually seated on the side of the orchestra. And so we were right in their laps and it was somehow they were giving these incredibly detailed, naturalistic, beautiful performances of, of these roles. And I think the show benefited tremendously from that. And then of course, when they started singing, you were, you were transported into another realm of beauty so i just um i i am so glad i went i would have hated to miss it i and and uh, i and the two people with whom i went we all had the same comment uh we, we said we thought it would be good but we had no idea it would be this good wow so that seems to be the consensus about among folks that i know that have seen the show that uh they're concurring with you exactly michael that that this was really an outstanding production, and, and bravo to everybody involved. It, sadly, it is closing today at 3 p.m., so you probably won't be able to see it if you haven't seen it already. If there I'm were looking- any way they could move it or, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how realistic it would be to, well, you know, I mean, there are places <laughs> they could do it, maybe off-Broadway, you know, someplace like New World Stages or um, some. If there were any way that that could happen, I, I think that that would be amazing. So I'm looking at a, a quick glance at the seating chart for the Oxrod Performing Arts Center, and, and it's, it's probably about 300, 350 seats or something like that. Okay. You know, I would so. have guessed that. I mean, um, I, I was there once, I believe, but when you, know, when you said uh, the seating capacity, I thought, gee, I must not be confusing with somewhere else, because I, I thought it was larger than that. So, Well, I said I was bad at, bad at yeah. that. <laughs> but anyway, I, I said between 200 and 300. So I yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, so that you can check out uh, the Axelrod Performing Arts Center website and anything else uh, that might be coming up over there. Peter, you got downtown to the public to see Chinese ladies. So tell us about your experience with this. Well, um, Chinese Lady is a new play um, written by a playwright named Ma Yi. That's M-A-Y-I. Hyphen, I guess, really. Uh, and the thing is, uh, I didn't see the actual performer. It's essentially a one-person show. There's a, a, a very, very small part for a, a man that um, comes and goes here and there. Perhaps he has 20 lines of dialogue, and I bet I'm being generous about that. Okay, so um, I get a, a message from the public theater saying, listen, uh, our leading lady is going to be out tonight. Um, what can we do? You know, I, you, you, uh, we don't think we can accommodate you um, at any other time because tickets for this are really hot. So if you want to come see the understudy, fine, but you're not going to see Shannon Chio. Um Well, okay, but at that point, I have to admit, I didn't know it was essentially a one-person show. So I thought, all right, well, you know, if they're saying you can come, usually when there's a big star out, they usually say to you, you can't come tonight, you must come another time. So I figured, all right, this is a subsidiary role. And I get there and I find out that, you know, it's a one-person show. So, um, okay, um, whoa, now it's a 90-minute show. 
And so we're asking an understudy named Cindy M. I am to do a one person show where she's been an understudy. Hmm. Good Lord. This lady was letter perfect. She was astonishing. I, I, you know, you really, you we so many times talk about seeing an understudy go on and wasn't he or she terrific. Yeah. But this workload, are you kidding me? This was astonishing. So um, it's really, really quite terrific. What is it? Okay. It's a show uh, that goes through time. And that's the whole point of it, that we start in the um, early 1800s. She says she was born in 1820. And then she says, so it's now 1844 and I'm 24 years old, that type of thing. And we go all the way up to the point where it's 2022 and she's 102 years old. Now she isn't, we know that she's died by this point in time, but the point is she is trying to show throughout history, how uh, the Chinese have been victimized. And, you know, (laughs) this is something we need to be reminded of. Uh, She talks about foot binding and um, how terrible that was that so many, um, so many, every uh, woman, because um, the, um, Grand Poobah decided that he liked the way when women walked, that their feet would make the imprint of a lotus blossom. So as a result, he wanted everybody, every woman to walk so that when they left footprints, they would look like lotus blossom. Wouldn't that be pretty? Yeah. Well, who's suffering? You know, I mean, really, this is just so horrible. Um, so she talks about that. Of course, she does mention a hey, look in America. They wear um, girdles, don't they? I mean, you know, they, they get bound too. yeah, but as uncomfortable as girdles must be. The fact remains that walking has to be really difficult when you're in. So we go through the fact that she um, P.T. Barnum at one point uh, was hiring um, Chinese ladies to be essentially freaks in the circus because of this foot binding. So we go through history and we uh, hear about the uh, building of the railroad, which, of course, was much accomplished by Chinese workers and how difficult um, a time they had and how the robber barons, you know, took control of the railroad. So so it really is quite a history lesson. And um, I really was fascinated and riveted, but not nearly as much um, as <laughs> Cindy M's performance of it. You had to be impressed when uh, somebody just walked in and they say, all right, you're on tonight. Whoa. So um, I'm sure Shannon Tio is very good. I'm sure she is. But nevertheless, if you go and you find out that indeed Cindy M is on tonight, don't give away your tickets. Don't go to another performance. See this woman. <laughs> All right. So another outstanding review. We're three for three right now. I guess we are. <laughs> we are. So uh, let's keep it going here, Michael. You got over to the Encompass New Opera Gala that we previewed last week, and there were uh, quite the uh, quite the names that were the, that were there. Tell us uh, how you felt about uh, going to the gala. Oh, it was amazing. It's always a wonderful event. And of course, it's been a while since the last one because they took off during the pandemic. So that was two years gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they were honoring two of our favorites, <laughs> Cheetah Rivera and Danny Burstein. Um, and the people assembled to honor them with either performances and or recollections included Laura Benanti. Liz Calloway, George Dvorsky, Jessica Hecht, uh, Karen Mason, Mary Beth Peel, John Riddle, Alexandra Silber, and Karen Ziemba. Also, uh, a recollections from John Doyle, Joel Gray, and Nathan Lane. Uh, Nathan Lane was there for Cheetah, and he did 
like a 12 minute rant on Merlin, the musical <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were both in. And I, I am going to tell you, I thought they were going to have to get ambulances lined up outside the national arts club (laughs) because the audience was gasping in laughter. It was just beyond hilarious. He says, he said, among other things, um, uh, he said, well, I was just starting out in theater and I was inexperienced, you know, uh, but Cheetah should have known better ah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in accepting the the uh, the assignment to begin with, because Merlin, uh, as some of her listeners may know, was a musical that starred Doug Henning, who, uh, as Nathan Lane put it, was a triple threat, could not act, sing or dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was famous as a music, uh, ma- magician, mm-hmm. but uh, but I did not see the show, so I can't comment uh you know but it was not a hit and uh, as opposed to the magic show mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a, a music another musical a previous musical that doug henning had starred in but they managed to somehow work around his uh, you know his limitations in that one isn't uh, that funny you say that michael because i i talked to steve schwartz about that and um i asked him a, a vague question i said mm-hmm. have you ever written for a star uh, and then I immediately thought, I remember hearing that he went up to uh, Toronto, I think it was, to uh, see the magic show, uh, just Doug Henning doing a magic show and saying, and, and his producers from Godspell saying, do you think there's a, a musical in this? And he said, yes. So I said, so you actually did write for a star? And he said, no, I wrote around a star. So, exactly. so, so your, your choice of words was very apt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must have been something. Uh, oh, and oh, and Nathan also said, um, that when Merlin came up, uh, he was in Present Laughter with George C. Scott. And that was his first big Broadway mm-hmm. thing that he, mm-hmm. he got great reviews for. Mm-hmm. And it really launched him. And so he had to go to George C. Scott to tell uh, him, you know, I'm leaving. Uh, to tell him. And so he told him and George said, you're leaving me to go do a fucking musical about Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine he used the expression he always uses when he talks about this show. Uh, Merlin, the musical that wouldn't disappear. Uh, <laughs> he always put, no, did he didn't say that? No, he didn't. He didn't say that. I'm surprised he always says that. So He, uh, he kept right. quoting, apparently it was bill, literally billed as something like Merlin, uh, the magical musical for the entire family. Yeah. I, or I, so, I, so, and he kept repeating that, you know, he kept coming back to that in his rant and it was beyond, you know, but I, I mean, he was brilliant. Uh, well, I, I also have another question that is um, what he usually says is that um, he became a much better performer as a result of the fact that they were previewing endlessly and they had a, a, a decent run <clears throat> after the opening. So I think he got like 200 some performances that, and I would try different things at every performance mm. and see what would work because I had the opportunity to. And um, and that really made me um, understand what audiences wanted, what I did well, what I did not do as well, et cetera. So um, he has talked to me about that. Uh, he didn't mention that in this case, he was really focusing on just making fun of the show. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and from where I was sitting, uh, I could see him and Cheetah in the in the in the front row. And she I thought she was going to be <laughs> have to be carted away also uh-huh. because she uh-huh. was just tears of laughter in, in her eyes. Um, oh, and Nathan also um, not to, to make it sound like the evening was all about him, but he really just he he 
just brought the house down. We uh, we press people and uh, some other people. We uh, were seated in a sort of an alcove. Um, you know, they did they did give us dinner and everything, but we we weren't in the main room. Uh, and that's where the the alcove is where the performers had to enter from. And so at some point during his rant, Nathan said something like, did you ever see anything more pathetic than these people sitting sitting in the alcove? <laughs> 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 so at which at which point I went, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, yeah, so he, so he was really great. But also to have all those people, all those wonderful people I mentioned uh, singing and commenting uh, on the beloved Cheetah and Danny. Um, oh, another guy I would like to mention is uh, they had some opera singers as well, uh, whose names wouldn't mean anything to you. But one of them, uh, it was named Oswaldo Iraheta, and he sang both um, the uh, he sang Candide in Make Our Garden Grow. Uh, that was one of the selections they did. And he also sang Maria uh, from West Side Story for obviously for Cheetah. Um, so uh, afterwards, I asked him, I told him how beautifully I thought he had sung. And I asked him if he'd seen the new movie. And he said, no, no. He said, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really, really interested in seeing it. And I said, well, it, you know, I think they did a really beautiful job. I said, but of course, like in the first movie, they take, you know, they take all the music down like about a third or or more. And he said, oh, really? And I said, oh, yeah. You know, especially, <laughs> you know, uh, you're not going to hear Maria in that key in the movie. <laughs> um, so it but it was great. It was great to be back. It was like, um, you know, when you haven't been when you've been going to something like that regularly year after year and then you miss two years and then you go back and it's just the way it was before. It just really does your heart good uh, to know that not everything was lost, <laughs> you know, during the pandemic. All right. So uh, that's the Encompass New Opera Theaters Gala. Hopefully there'll be another one next year. And uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can check that out as well. Peter, you got in the Felicia Mobile and headed mm -hmm. down to the Philadelphia area where you saw two new, uh, well, not new, but you saw two productions. Uh, one is uh, Life is a Dream at the Egopo Classic Theater. So tell mm -hmm. us about this. Well, here's what I want everyone to do. I want everybody to go to Wikipedia and look up Life is a Dream. Um, <laughs> this is a 17th century play that uh, was written by Pedro Calderon de la Baca. And I want you to read the synopsis and see how far you get before getting utterly confused. I am not indicting the <laughs> Wikipedia writer. This is a complicated story. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I insisted that my girlfriend, Linda, read it at dinner. Uh, and um, she really halfway through the first act, um, she gave up entirely. And it's a three act play. So here's my point. This company is doing a 75 minute version of it, 75 minutes. They have brilliantly, brilliantly stripped it down to what it needs to be. Um, it is not at all wordy. There's, um, it, uh, let's give credit where credit is due. Brenna Geffers is the director who also collaborated on the um, editing of the script by uh, who, and Felipe Vergara's uh, helped um, her. And um, it's amazing how clear this story was <clears throat> in the way they told it. Um, so, yes, 
characters were omitted. Um, it didn't have uh, the sprawling cast that um, it uh, has in the original. It's only eight people in this version. But wow. I mean, I I'm, during the week when I knew I was going, I said, well, let me read Wikipedia. And, and I, I couldn't get through it. And, I, and then yesterday when I got to the theater a little early, I said, all right, let's try. Oh, my God. What am I in for? This is going to be horrid. No, it wasn't. And beautifully, beautifully done. Um, it's about a king. Um, nicely played. Oh, we're in Poland, by the way. Ironically enough, you know, it's funny. Um, mm. uh, we, we, we don't imagine that a Spanish playwright write about Poland. But, you know, we would think nothing of an American playwright writing about something about Polish. So why shouldn't a Spanish playwright do it? <clears throat> okay. So it's about a king and uh, he had a kid, a boy, and um, there was a, a fortune teller type person saying um, this kid's going to be trouble. So he locked him up. He's afraid. Uh, I don't mean he's going to be trouble like the terrible twos. I mean that he might overtake mm. the throne and um, usurp power. So the king's taking no chances. So um, so it looks like that there are two other people who are related um, to the king who uh, may very well marry and become the new king and queen when the king retires. He's, he's he's getting on, you know, so he's thinking about retiring. But um, as it turns out, that kid is is released from the cave and he comes into play and we get to see if indeed the prophecy was quite true. Now, even though we're talking about way back when, you know, the point is that there's a lot of parallels. History mm -hmm. repeats itself with what's going on today in this country, especially at the end. When, um, well, we see what happens. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but um, I saw what happened. <laughs> I'm not going to let you know what happened. <laughs> but um, the thing is, let, let me say that you will be reminded of uh, recent events uh, that happened uh, between 2016, 2017, really, and 2021. So, um, so it's very, very powerful. But um, the, the time flew by. And um, when I really thought I was in for a long, horrid slog, um, after reading that, uh, no, I was delightfully and deliciously surprised by this tremendously terrific production and adaptation. All right. So uh, next you saw Personality, the Lloyd Price musical at the People's Light Theater Company. So tell us about that. Well, um, I'm, you know, of course, it's another jukebox musical, and um, I'm sure some people will say, boy, you know, they must be digging the bottom of the barrel now. Who's Lloyd Price? What was he? <laughs> um, yes, he did have a big hit with personality, uh, which was a, a mid-50s hit. And um, but, you know, who, who knows anything about it? Well, the story is much more interesting um, than one might glean at first glance. And as odd as this may sound, it reminded me a good deal of gypsy no there's no stage mother nothing like that <laughs> this kid did it all on his own but what reminded me of gypsy is that famous sequence deep in the second act where um louise um semi strips for the first time and she's scared and she's barely getting out let me entertain you and then we see a montage where she uh, finally is a headliner at minsky's and she's full of confidence and she's happy and all that goes with that well this is a story of a, about a kid who's very naive not stupid but naive. Um, he grew up uh, with um, a father who was a manual laborer and, in fact, helped him um, every now and then in the job. But he did love music. And um, luckily, he was in the right place at the right time. Um, of course, one of those places was church. And uh, it's amazing to me whenever I interview people um, who are singers, how many 
actually learned to sing or started to sing or enjoyed singing in church. And so it's it's the typical Southern church where the people have the fans, you know, they're waving the fans, you know, because it's hot. Um, because we're in Kenna, Louisiana, which is only 14 miles away from New Orleans. That's it, 14. And yet for a kid like this, a black kid growing up um, in poverty, he might as well be a million miles away. So he doesn't really, he, of course, he hopes someday to see New Orleans, but little does he know he's going to really conquer it uh, musically. So uh, there are flaws in this show galore. I mean, um, this is just starting out. And um, the um, book writer, B. Jeffrey Madoff, and I'm, I'm probably going to be the millionth person to say, gee, I hope he's no relation to Bernie. Mm. But, um, but nevertheless, um, he's done a lot of telling where he should be showing. Now, for example, um, Lloyd Price um, is 16 years old when he's starting to hit the big time. And he goes to a lawyer who wants nothing to do with this uh, young black kid until he shows him the money. I mean, he's been doing well, you know, so he pays him in cash. So the lawyer says, well, look, since you're so young, you're going to have to get an emancipation from your parents. You're going to have to get them to sign papers to say that you're an adult. We don't see that scene. We never see the parents in any context. Whenever there's any, um, uh, did they encourage him? Did they discourage him? They say, you're, you're pipe dreaming. What's going on? Never. And I would like to see those scenes. And being told about them is not nearly enough. Um, I will say that um, one of my... Um, most dreaded things happened in this show and that's early on in the church scene where um you know there's a big holy roller type of uh, female singer who um starts putting her hands over her head and clapping and telling us that we have to clap too um so um uh, that's a little off-putting to uh, someone like me but maybe not everybody else what a fascinating nugget of information that never occurred to me in all these years and that is the fact that you know here we it, it, there was a time of course when there were white um, bathrooms and black bathrooms and never the twain shall meet. And if you were a black man, you had to go to the bathroom. And as pointed out, on an airplane, this didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, there, was no, <laughs> there was no white and black bathrooms. And, uh, you know, so the question becomes, you know, if it can happen on the airplane, why can't it happen everywhere else? I thought that was a terrific detail. So I like that. Um, very good projections, by the way. Uh, but um, what was really projected more than anything else was the um, young Lloyd. It's a, there's a there's a, an older Lloyd who looks back. Um, he's played by um, St. Aubin, but it's a young Lloyd who gets um, um, really the show going. And uh, that's Nathaniel Washington. He's really quite good. Um, also in the cast, playing uh, a man who's going to um, see that uh, Lloyd gets to the top, the, the gentleman's name is Logan, is Stanley Wayne Mathis, who um, you may remember from that wonderful, um, by the way, I know it's a, mi it's a minority opinion, but I love that 99 revival of um, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Um, I know mm -hmm. that um, people are tuning out right now uh, that that's the end. They'll never <laughs> launched, uh, launched some pretty good careers there, that Charlie Brown. <laughs> well, sure it did. Yeah, that's a very good point. But um, I, I love the way it looked. I love the way it played. Uh, I love scenery. I love, you know, give me that. So anyway, so there, there's another very strange thing that happens in this show. And I, I, it's so bizarre. All right. So here is what it is. Um, Lloyd Price gets a chance to make his first record. Okay, so he sings his song, Laudie Miss Claudie. He swears, by the way, that Laudie has nothing to do with the Lord. You know, you would think it would, but he just said it's just a rhyme. That's all. Um, mm. All right. So anyway, he sings the song. All right. He goes into somebody's house and he hears the record being played on the radio. And he has no idea that it's his record. Now, 
I do understand all of us. The first time we ever hear our voices on the tape recorder, you know, and we're with a group of people. <laughs> we always say that I don't sound like that. And everybody says, yes, you do. Yes, you do. So we have no idea how we sound. So if it had been like a, a standard, you know, a, a glory, glory, hallelujah, you know, whatever. You know, if it had been a standard and he didn't recognize his voice, I could buy it. But the fact that it's his own song, who's singing it? I mean, who else could it be? You know, so I think that was um, kind of clunky. So um, I, I didn't buy that for a tenth of a second. Um, I will say this, you know, um, I had an aisle seat and it was really something. Uh, I was on the um, house right center aisle. So therefore, I could see the people who were in the house right, right uh, aisle. And it was so interesting to see people tapping their hands on their armrest or moving their feet in tempo with the music. So this really was a crowd pleaser. And um, that's something. But um, again, I would like to see um, more telling. Um, less telling and more showing. So um, th- at one point, um, Logan comes on and said, gee, that was a hell of a show you just did. Wow, you're going to be big. And he didn't even do a number. I mean, you know, obviously there are plenty of numbers in the show, but there's got to be one before somebody comes on and say, boy, weren't you terrific? The audience loved you and all that. So um, so that's um, Nathaniel Washington is very good, very good at calibrating the growth of this guy, you know, from being naive. Um, and of course, then, of course, he gets involved with a woman. You'd expect that to happen. And um, and and um, he not only gets one, but two women pregnant. And he says, yeah, my parents weren't pleased. Once again, bring on the parents. That's a contentious scene. Let's see it. You know, that's very a very interesting point that's made is that um, he now that people are becoming interested in so-called race music, that blacks and whites are interacting. And so a congressman actually wanted to see that he got drafted and sent to Korea so that he wouldn't be able to influence anybody. Now, that's a very, very interesting point. But again, we're told it. Let's see the senator. And, you know, the point is they did have white people drifting in um, here and there, including one of my favorite performers, Ben Dibble, um, coming in and just uh, (laughs) playing tiny roles but have them play the big roles this is really um very important so so um i i there are so many interesting points in this show that i do believe that it really could be fashioned to something else but um i i would like to see um, mr madoff go back to the drawing board and start dramatizing these scenes that need to be dramatized if so um this you know somebody jukebox well let's put it this way mj look the point is mj is doing very well box office wise you know but the point is we know so much about michael jackson a lot of it is you know uh, oh yeah yeah i remember when that happened here you don't get that because you don't know enough about lloyd price so you can't say oh yeah i remember when that happened even if you were of that age i bet you don't remember what it happened did it ever occur to people about the idea that blacks would use the um Air, 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 um, the airplane uh, restroom. Of course, you know, somebody is going to counter that by saying, yeah, but how many blacks flew at that time? Yeah, but some did, you know, and really, so um, excellent point there. So I wish personality well, and um, I hope we get to see it again, but I hope we get to see it in, um, in an enhanced version. So I just want to add some information here, Peter. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times has an article his name is Madoff, not Madoff, and he's I not re- not related. Uh, <laughs> that came up, huh? <laughs> yeah, it uh, came up in March nineteenth, two thousand nine. So <laughs> this guy's been dealing with this for <laughs> a number of years, thirteen years. Oh, it or takes so. forever for these things to get on. Don't forget uh, Grand Hotel, you know, first oh, yeah. in fifty eight, <laughs> then eighty nine. You know, so um, <laughs> so he's uh, Mr. Madoff is uh, quite accomplished in the film industry. 
Uh-huh. So uh, he's well-known in the film industry and hopefully well-known in the theatrical industry soon. So. It's a good start. It's a mm-hmm. good start. Just keep going. All right. Uh, Michael, speaking of good starts, uh, I'm not sure about the ending. Uh, Madam Butterfly at the Met. Uh, <laughs> so you got a chance to see it. So tell us about this production. Yeah. Uh, and before I do, I uh, I wanted to call attention to uh, I received the 2022-23 season brochure from the Met in the oh, mail. That's right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Beautifully printed and produced and uh it's got this phenomenal black and white photo uh i guess a composite photo on the cover of kelly o'hara oh. renee fleming and joyce d donato who that name uh, that kelly o'hara name seems to keep, keep coming, coming up, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. um who are the leads in this new opera based on the hours uh, with music by Kevin Putz and libretto by Greg Pierce. And so I actually took a photo of the, uh, of the cover of the brochure to include in the show notes. Cause I thought our listeners would enjoy it. Um, Cause they probably know, well, they certainly know Kelly and they probably know Renee Fleming from her theater work, if not from her opera work, uh, even if they don't know Joyce D. Donato. Uh, but that is something to look forward to next season. But in the meantime, I got to see the, incredibly beautiful Anthony Minghella production of Madam Butterfly, which is still in the rep at the Met. Um, it's been in the rep for many years and gl- very gladly so, because it's just so gorgeous. Um, this is a, a production I always point to. I, I'm so glad it exists uh, for two reasons, because it's so beautiful, uh, but also it is um, very non-traditional in almost every way. I suppose the costumes are somewhat traditional, uh, but even them not completely. Uh, the staging and the whole concept of it, uh, it features bunraku puppetry and uh, everything about it is not anything like you would have seen um, when the opera premiered in, in 1904, I think it was, or it probably for 50 years after that. Uh, not, a, not, not a naturalistic, realistic production in any way, but so effective and so powerful and so gorgeous. And it just, uh, I always point to this production as an example of uh, sometimes I'm accused of not accepting anything new. <laughs> I'm one of those people <laughs> who some people, uh, you know, uh, call a staunch traditionalist and, and closed minded and not open to new interpretations and new stagings. But I always say I'm completely open to them if they're good and if they <laughs> and if they you know illuminate and enhance the material rather than destroying it like well i'm not going to name a few recent mm-hmm, musical mm-hmm, revivals that mm-hmm, did that mm-hmm. um anyway this uh, i was so glad to see the production again i had not seen it in several years um to the point where i had forgotten a few details of it so i was surprised anew at, at the beauty and power of it um the leads were brian i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce this although he's american he's from new york uh, his last name is j-a-g-d-e jagdi yagdi um as lieutenant pinkerton the uh the leading male but also the villain of the piece um scott 
Scully as Goro. That's the uh, equivalent to the engineer in, in Miss Saigon. Uh, Elizabeth Dishong as Suzuki. And Chocho-san was this beautiful singer uh, new to me named Eleonora Burato uh, as Madame Butterfly Chocho-san. Um, was really, really well done. I, I uh, well sung and beautifully acted. It's it seems to be one of those productions where they really, really, really focus on the acting uh, because they know what you know that that's what Anthony Minghella wanted, <laughs> and it's the power of it. Uh, it. It's just heartbreaking, really. You know, such a heartbreaking story to begin with. Um, and the Bunraku puppetry, which is used in several places in the production, but most uh, importantly for uh, the, there's the role of Butterfly's son, uh, who is supposed to be three, year, three years old, uh, Butterfly and Pinkerton's son, although Pinkerton is unaware that he has a son until he finally shows up again and is like, oh, uh, what am I going to do with this? Um but that can be a big casting problem because to have a three-year-old on stage, obviously, <laughs> you know, is um, is difficult. Uh, usually they wind up casting like a, you know, a seven-year-old or something like that. And they just hope people won't notice. But when it's a puppet, um, just expertly manipulated by these puppeteers, these black clad puppeteers, it just really moves the production into a whole another level of of just uh, just real power and beauty um oh and something funny happened uh, i had a new york experience afterwards because i i uh, i walked home uh and i was walking into my elevator at manhattan plaza and there was one other fellow who got on uh with me and it was by this point it was let's see uh uh, it was about 1130 or so. And he saw my playbill and he said, oh, you saw Madam Butterfly tonight. And I said, yes, I yes, I did. I said, were you there? He said, I was on stage. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I, I, I didn't recognize that. I said, oh, were you? Um, I, I, I thought I said, were you one of the puppeteers? He said, no. He said, I danced uh, the role of Pinkerton in the dream ballet towards mm -hmm. the end of the of the show. Um, and I said, oh, well, that was great. I said, that's such a beautiful ballet. And I had actually forgotten that they added that. Anyway, his name is Amir Levy. Uh, and uh, so that was, I thought, well, you know, this is why we live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no. There was a time when, uh, my, <laughs> when my girlfriend Linda was talking to her friends at a, at a restaurant about how uh, I hated river dance and I couldn't stand Irish dancing and so on and so forth. And the guy came over and said, well, as a member of the cast, I feel terrible that you're saying that. And I wish you wouldn't continue saying things like that in a restaurant. So, yeah, <laughs> not always. All right. Yeah, not always. No. <laughs> <laughs> the yin and the yang. <laughs> <laughs> so you also uh, moved about 10 blocks or so south to uh, 54 Below, where you saw a live from Feinstein's 54 Below to Steve with Love. Liz Calloway celebrates Stephen Sondheim featuring Nick Calloway Foster. Yes. Um, um, yeah, that's Liz's son uh, with her, yeah. her husband, Dan Foster. And I... From what I can glean, he is not 
a professional performer, at least not yet. Uh, but he had a beautiful voice. They duetted on Move On from Sunday in the Park with George. And Liz, uh, you know. Lizzie uh, and Danny can make great babies. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> Who can do uh, better than that? Well, mm-hmm. I don't th- I don't think his father is Todd Graff, but anyway. <laughs> but the point is made. Yeah. Um, and Liz, uh, you know, we, uh, so many of us were talking afterwards. She she's a, just a phenomenon. Her voice is mm-hmm. in pristine shape. Uh, if anything, maybe it sounds better <laughs> than than when she started. Uh, certainly not. No deterioration whatsoever. Oh, and I didn't even make the the connection between Saigon and Liz there. Yeah, that's right. From, yeah. from Madame Butterfly, there was a transition <laughs> missed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she's she's done a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, one of the hi- highlights of the evening was her performance of In Buddy's Eyes from Follies. Mm. So I got to sing, uh, how spoiled am I? I got to hear Liz Calloway sing that live twice in one week because mm. she all, that's what she sung at the Encompass New Opera evening. Uh, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, in tribute to Danny, who was in the, mm-hmm. that uh, the revival of Follies. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just a great program. Uh, Liz really does have a, did have a, a, a decades-long association and friendship with, with Sondheim, beginning with, um, you know, from really, mm-hmm. from the beginning, she, um, she mentioned, this is so sweet and so cool. Her first exposure to Sondheim was when her parents took her and her sister Anne Hampton Calloway uh, to see company um, Liz was nine at the time. And she wow. said, you know, she said, of course, the show was a little, you know, not really meant for someone of that mm-hmm. age group. Mm-hmm. She said, but my parents, they had already seen it and they loved it so much that they wanted to bring us both to see it. Wow. Um, she said, so there I was, you know, um, sitting in the Alvin Theater seeing this wonderful show produced by Hal Prince and directed by Hal Prince and yeah. with, with a score by Stephen Sondheim. Uh-huh. And then fast forward how many well, years later, 11 or so, 10, her, 11 first, years. Yeah. her first Broadway show mm-hmm. as a performer mm-hmm. was Merrily We Roll Along at the Alvin I'll Theater, yeah. produced and directed by Harold Prince with a score by Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she had many other Sondheim uh experiences over the years including that wonderful program that was done at the whitney um uh yeah. the, the whitney uh, museum uh called an evening with stephen sondheim in 1983 which uh i never really i was aware of that album mm-hmm. uh but i never owned it until recently when i found it on lp uh-huh. uh, i never got it on cd and i was listening to it yesterday and it's really fantastic oh yeah in fact <laughs> that has actually become a review that has been now, you know that right called you're gonna love tomorrow did she, she mention she mentioned that yes yeah, she did, yeah. yeah um so the rest of her program was was wonderful uh, um i should mention that uh, right now her her great musical director pianist alex rybeck mm. and her two fabulous musicians rit hen on bass and ron tierno on uh, drums and uh some some percussion he had some little like bell things and <laughs> that he was playing that that really added to it um she uh, uh this is in no order but she did sing send in the clowns and you would think 
you know, what can anyone bring to that <laughs> at this point that, that yeah. you haven't already? Mm-hmm. Well, she just she her, her secret is I've always thought of her as um, someone like Nancy Lamott. Uh, they just sing the song. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't do a lot of um, interpretations. They don't do back a lot of back phrasing. They don't um, add embellishments. They don't do any of that. They just sing as written and in a clear, beautiful voice. And they let the incredible, you know, music and lyrics do the work. Uh, so I, I've always loved her for that. And I continue to. Um, the opening medley was amazing. It was uh, something that I guess Alex and Liz had collaborated to put together. And it was um, a bunch of songs, uh, a bunch of Sondheim songs in a in a big medley. But what made it so difficult, I would imagine, was that um, most of the lyrics were the originals, but there were a few changes like to tailor uh, the lyrics to Liz's personal experience with Sondheim. And that must be very challenging to, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to sing a a parody, uh, but to sing it with a lot of the original lyrics as well, I would think that'd be difficult. And that also is true of um, another number that she did. Have you, have either of you guys heard this parody that was written by a woman called Lauren Meyer or Mayer? Um, Another hundred lyrics. No, no. Another hundred lyrics just flew off at the page. <laughs> uh-huh. It's it's really really funny, but okay. so so incredibly difficult. Uh, it's it's got uh, getting married today in there too. Wow. It's got every impossible Sondheim song in it with wow. parody lyrics mixed with r- original lyrics. So I don't know how Liz did. She really took a a big breath before she she went into it, and she even made a joke about, I hope I get through this. (laughs) And she did just brilliantly. Uh, Other songs in the show, uh, What Do We Do? We Fly. Um, Those lyrics have never sounded so funny Mm -hmm. as when she did them. Uh, And uh, it it was a very full evening. Uh, um, The shows at 54 tend to be limited to an hour or an hour 15 at most because they usually have one show after another and indeed her show was the op- the first show the 7 p.m show and there was another one at 9 30 uh, uh so uh i was surprised that it was an hour and it was a full hour and a half but it was really a great evening of entertainment and uh if you ever have the chance to see her in in future don't do not hesitate so uh, I, I don't know if anybody keeps these stats, but I'm looking at the 54 Below website, and uh, they list um, – they have like a, a page dedicated to each performer and things like that, and it lists all the shows that they've performed in the 54 Below and Liz's – uh, performance schedule of 54 Below over the years goes on and on and on, like the story goes on. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I wonder if she is the someone who has performed the most or at least close to the top of that list, but uh, we'll have to ask somebody over 54 if they keep those stats. I wouldn't doubt it. Oh, and I, I, I can't uh, fail to mention that she did tell again that story, which I've uh, told retold here once before, but it's so great that I think it bears retelling about how when she was in Baby um, on Broadway, that of course was after Merrily We Roll Along, so she had already worked with Prince and Sondheim, and she got to the theater one night uh, for Baby during mm, yeah. previews, 
And um, she had heard that Prince and Sondheim had already been to the show uh, some nights previously. And she arrived to find two envelopes at the stage door uh, addressed to her. And so she opened one uh, and it was from Sondheim. And he wrote, I don't care what Hal says. I thought you were great in the show. <laughs> and then she opened the other one and it was and it, yep. was, it was from it? Hal yep. from Hal and it said, I don't care what Steve says, you were great in the show. So I just the idea of these two giants in musical theater sitting there and giggling and saying, Ooh, let's play this practical joke on Liz, on this 25-year-old who who was in our, you know, in our show on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I just love that story. Mm-hmm. Funny, while driving uh, through Pennsylvania yesterday, there was an enormous billboard with the word baby on it. And I thought, gee, you know, it's funny. You know, that's the name of that show. I wonder what they were advertising. They were advertising that show. It was being done at the media theater in media oh, wow. Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, wow. so, yeah. so, you know, I didn't expect that to happen. And I will say that of all the songs I have ever played on my CD, the one that James alluded to earlier, uh, what could be better than that? Um, her voice comes through so clear and beautiful. Yeah. Nobody can touch that on my CD player. She uh, reigns supreme as the most clear and lovely sound. Mm. All right. So that wraps it up for the morning. Before we get on to uh, trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com where there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you'll find Broadway Ratings offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, including links to some of the things we've talked about today. We also have transcripts for this and all shows on Broadway Radio. If you want a transcript, please email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and include the name of the episode that you would like, and we'll send you a, a, a transcript back. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? D. Hody. Len Cariou and Judge M. Cohim have played characters who have had the same job. What is it? Answer, President of the United States. <laughs> In chronological order, Judge M. Cohan played Franklin Delano Roosevelt and I'd Rather Be Right. Len Cariou played Theodore Roosevelt and Teddy and Alice. And Dee Hody played Miss Mona Stangley, who was elected to the office in the best little whorehouse goes public. Yes, in the 1994 sequel to The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, the former madam of the chicken ranch is elected president of the United States. And you wonder why this show ran 16 performances? All right. Tony Janicki is back on top, defying those who said he was too old and feeble to regain first place. (laughs) He was followed by Mike Meany, Josh Israel. Jeff Falenga and Isaac Blevins. So many of our regulars um, didn't get this one. I really thought it was murderously hard, frankly. So I, my hat is off to uh, those uh, gentlemen for doing so well. This By week's the way, class- Len Carrier was in the audience at Liz Calloway's opening night. Oh, how so nice. <laughs> I, I should have told him that he was prominently featured in the trivia question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week's question, Noel Coward wrote a song at Twilight. Anna DeVere Smith wrote Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992. Jonathan Tolins wrote Twilight of the Golds. And yet another play whose title was a synonym for Twilight set the wheels in motion for a successful 21st century musical. 
What is it? Hmm. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Uh, just as a side note, I, I didn't know that this was the trivia question. Jennifer McHugh interviewed a gentleman that is doing Twilight Los Angeles for the uh, anniversary out in Los right, Angeles, yeah. um, the 30th anniversary? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm wrong. Of the, of the uprisings in Los Angeles. Sure. Uh, it's on This Week in Theater. That came out yesterday on the Broadway Radio Network. So if you want to listen to that interview, it's a great interview. So, Michael, what do we have in our musical moment? Well, because of when the quote-unquote golden age uh, of musical theater began, uh, we have lately, it seems like we've been celebrating a lot of really big anniversaries. And someone pointed out to me, uh, I hadn't realized it myself quite, that this year is the 75th anniversary of both Brigadoon and Finian's Rainbow. Mm -hmm. um, two shows which uh, I've even read this somewhere uh, that apparently are frequently confused with each other uh, by some people, even though, I don't know, I guess maybe confused by Americans because maybe to some Americans, uh, Scotland is the same as Ireland, <laughs> even though and Finian's Rainbow doesn't take place in Ireland anyway. No. It just, <laughs> just has some Irish characters in it. But <laughs> anyway, uh, two great shows. There's a rumor on, on that note. Uh, people insist that when Arthur Freed, um, uh, he, what he wanted to make was a, a movie of Finian's Rainbow, but somehow he wound up buying the rights to Brigadoon by mistake. Wow. Mm. <laughs> wow. And wow. that sounds so insane, but I've, I've really read that several times. So maybe it's true. Who knows? <laughs> and they didn't do a very good job with that movie of Brigadoon, but that's another story. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, it's fair to say that Brigadoon and Finian's Rainbow have two of the greatest scores ever mm. written. Mm. Um, uh uh, Brigadoon, of course, is Lerner and Lowe, and Finian's Rainbow is uh, uh, E.Y. Harburg and Burton Lane. And uh, the two musical selections we chose for our opener, uh, the overture to Brigadoon, which really kind of sets the mood for that for that uh, beautiful show right from the start. And uh, for Finian's Rainbow, uh, you know, of course, there's so many great songs in that and so many possibilities. But I, I chose on that great come and get it day. Mm. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, since we're celebrating the 75th anniversary, it's from the original uh, Broadway cast album. And so you'll hear uh, as soloists, you'll hear Ella Logan and Donald Richards in addition to the ensemble. Uh, so two great songs and two great shows celebrating their 75th anniversaries this year all right so that wraps it up on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway bye 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 on that great great come and get day i'll get my girl that calico gown i'll get my for word has come from Gabriel's horn The earth beneath your plow is a button and now it's yours. Glory time's coming for to stay On that great, great come and get it day
Share it. 